It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The hospitality, the warmness, the kindness that was shown to us by people who've experienced some of the worst weeks and worst months of their lives, who, who showed us what they went through, despite the pain it causes them to, to relive it, because they want those stories to be told. We've done our best to, to tell the stories and to reach as many people as possible. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. All this week, our usual host, David Knowles, and our defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, have been in Ukraine. We've heard them interview prominent Ukrainian politicians, including the deputy prime minister of Ukraine yesterday and the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, on Wednesday. We've heard them report from significant locations of the war so far and speaking to those who've experienced the struggle firsthand to hear their stories. Today, however, as they make their way back to London, we're bringing you a collage of their dispatches, offering a more intimate look at life in a country invaded five months ago this week. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. It's Friday, the 29th of July. Day 156. And before we talk to David and Dom, here are our updates of the past 24 hours. Russian forces are effectively crippled as Vladimir Putin insists on a meat grinder war strategy, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary of the United Kingdom, has said today. He told the BBC's Today programme, quote, Putin hasn't changed from his desire to occupy the whole of Ukraine, take Kiev and Odessa, but his army has been effectively crippled by huge amounts of losses, over 25,000 dead, maybe twice as many injured. When I talk about mean grinder, which is what they're doing, is they are resorting to a sort of Soviet tactic, moving very slowly, metres, not miles a day in some parts. In other news, President of Ukraine Vladimir Zelensky has visited a port in southern Ukraine to oversee grain being loaded for export into a Turkish ship. He said, the first vessel, the first ship is being loaded since the beginning of the war. We are ready to export Ukrainian grain. We're waiting for signals from our partners regarding the start of transportation. Of course, the president made his announcements on Friday following a deal with Ukraine brokered by the UN and Turkey to unblock Ukraine's Black Sea delivery routes. And finally, the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss on Thursday night described herself as a freedom fighter on Ukraine, telling Conservative Party members that they could trust her to do all she can to ensure Vladimir Putin is defeated. 
She said that she would make Vladimir Zelensky the first foreign leader she calls if she is chosen as the next prime minister, pledging to follow in Boris Johnson's footsteps and be Kyiv's greatest friend. So those are our top headlines on Friday. We will be discussing other stories in more detail on Monday, including alleged Russian atrocities. As I said at the beginning, we've not been able to fit every dispatch from David and Dom in the podcast this week. On Tuesday, they took a trip to Irpin on the outskirts of Kiev. Just in the car going through Irpin, and it's quite astonishing to see, just looking up at the apartment buildings and the strikes usually clip or hit the top of the buildings. There's quite a few apartments with their with their uh, with their windows blown out. But something that's rather encouraging and fascinating is how much reconstruction work is going on. We can see we can see quite a few people up on ladders, uh, up on pieces of machinery fixing up the apartments. We've just gone past the central park as well on, on the left in in Irpin and there are children out on their bicycles and it, it's an utterly discombobulating experience driving through here to see quite a normal suburb, quite a normal large town on the edge of Kiev and uh, just the evidence of the sheer violence this place endured. I mean we're just going past an, an, another house here which has been destroyed and the next house is, is untouched and then the apartment block following it, the top's been blown off, although the, win- the windows seem to have been replaced. I mean, this is this is a commentary that could just go on in that vein. Every other house, violence, some damage. Just got out of the car. Um, it's a series of apartment blocks in one of the most desirable streets, we're told. And the artillery shells have come in and just obliterated the front of the building. And you can see the, the black scorch marks. Uh, there's a car on the side which has got... see the shrapnel, and I'm not sure if there's bullet holes or not, but certainly shrapnel damage there. Just walking down, following uh, following our guide Max and following Dom Nichols. Oh gosh, that's something. There's an apartment block opposite me, sort of a bit a bit of a hundred meters away, and half of the the front of it is just blackened. So there must have been a fire or something there. But as I said, coming through up in earlier, one of the really interesting things is the amount of reconstruction going on. Most of these windows are already patched up, and you can sort of, you can see why people moved here. Max was explaining that the majority of people who come to a pin, well, lots of them were coming from Donetsk, escaping from the 2014 and onwards uh, war in the east. And actually, as apartments got so expensive in Kiev, uh, a pin and Butcha became very, very popular destinations. Uh, so there are a huge number of apartment blocks here. And the damage done months ago, it's starting to be repaired. It's, uh, it's quite a place. We're just going through Erpin with Max, who's showing us around, showing us his apartment uh, and some of the reconstruction that's going on. Just on the left, we can see what Max has called a graveyard of cars. Max, what, what are we looking at? What, what is it? It is a graveyard of cars uh, collected from European Bucha in order to, uh, in order to uh, show the foreigners what Russians have did to the private property of Ukrainians. So those cars were destroyed by Russians and you brought them together? Yeah, Ma- right? many people yeah. were trying to come here to the place to find their car, to see if there is anything that they can still save or somehow sell. So you can just, maybe we'll, we should go just for a quick walk. Sure thing, we're just going to get out of the car now. So we're right up really close, we're just a few meters away. So Max, what were you saying? 
I was saying that this this very place were used uh, was used by the night bikers. They loved this place to uh, drive at night. Yeah, there was uh, lots of police here, always, and this place is now silent as never before. Because the next place from this is a real graveyard with uh, oh, yeah. fresh graves uh, of those people buried in Irpin, in mass graves. Their bodies were moved to that uh, graveyard. And that is a graveyard of people, that is a graveyard of cars. Graveyard of cars. And we can, see, we can see family cars here, we can see vans. So this was all destroyed by the Russian artillery? Yes, yeah, sure, sure, completely. It's I mean, just, just looking at it, there's, no, there's nothing yeah. left. Every single tire is burnt off. Yeah. You see, some people wrote down their phone numbers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why did they do that? Well, a friend of mine did it just in case that there would be some people willing to pay for this. I'm not sure why, yeah. but that was like, what if? Let's, maybe let's... Yeah, let's go, let's go a bit closer. So just walking a bit closer. Just on the inside, you can see everything is just burnt out. It's absolutely ghostly. Some, by the way, some explosion devices have been also found there in one of these cars. So, so, I, so IEDs, little bombs yeah, found yeah, in these yeah, cars. Yeah. You think planted Russian, there by Russians did it? Yeah. Of course, they uh, they had some like a month here in Irpinian in Bucha, uh, a month to uh, mine territory to. Uh, set some explosion devices because they knew that they would escape and civilians would come back. They would. By the way, there is a sign on that um, door. Yeah, yeah in red. Yeah. Death to the looters. Death to the looters so because smacks, uh, there were lots yeah. of looters here. Yeah. People were trying to steal everything. Some of the people were trying to steal food in order to eat. Uh, because this territory was uh, without any Ukrainian governments, uh, without any products and so on. And some people were trying to steal like TVs and so on. And they also left when Russians uh, left. Was anybody hurt by the by the explosive devices in the cars or were they all found? Before yeah, yeah, yeah. M many people were uh, killed by that. There were several cases when people were killed when they tried to open the door. And after that, any person trying to open the door of his car in the pink uh, contacted the emergency service. Uh, the, the guys came and checked the car. So just for our listeners, just so you, you can have a sense of where we are, the sun is beating down. It's a very, another very hot day here. We're just in the, in the car graveyard on the edge of Erpin, and there are basically sort of these burnt skeletons of cars. And this, this Max, this, you said this is a, an ex people have brought these here to show what the Russians are capable of. Is yeah, that what, yeah, that yeah. what it is? Th that's a real proof of what Russians can do with you. It's the evening here in Kyiv. I'm sitting by the Golden Gate and the subway stop. Uh, Dominic Nichols and I have just got back off after a rather long journey around Erpin and Butcha, suburbs to the northwest of Kyiv. Our driver, Max, was there to show us some of the damage and some of the experiences the people there had been through and it was um it, i mean it was an absolutely horrible and also quite fascinating journey um, alongside all of the damage i mean you drive down the road and you see apartment block after apartment block with its top blown off its scorch marks around the corners it was been quite an experience getting out of the car and having a little walk around we saw uh, a mall which uh, had once had a, a bowling alley in it and it's been gutted by shelling um, it was called Strike and Grill you can tell that because the 
place name is kind of all that's left, really. And it's just an odd sight, frankly. The the machines that bowling alleys used to pick up pins and return balls and so on, they, they, they were all there to see. So the guts of the building had been revealed by the by the shelling. And when, when we went inside, we could see what looked like dead birds hanging from the ceiling. And uh, our guide wasn't really able to explain what that was. But the smell was indescribable, and he did say... You know, imagine this, imagine this, but 20 times worse than there are bodies in the street. Other details important to mention, maybe if a, you know, one of the apartments we saw, uh, again, with a completely smashed top floor and several other bombed-out apartments in, in the building, uh, the, the residents had plastered over a big sign with a, with a very large QR code. Um, as th- this is one of the locations foreign leaders and dignitaries and businessmen and so on and so forth are, th- are taken to by the U- Ukrainian authorities to show them what these what these towns went through. And the residents have apparently got so fed up of people turning up and they've put these big kiosk signs up so you can immediately donate money. That was something else we saw. Uh, and also as we're coming back, just the little signs of everyday life. The, 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 there's an incredibly long queue of cars to get out of Kiev and into the suburbs which was rather interesting as we sort of sailed through the checkpoint going in the other direction. And now I'm back in Kiev. I'm just here by the Golden Gate and you can hear lots of families out, lots of people out, having a smoke, having a cup of tea. I've actually got a cup of tea. My Ukrainian is now good enough to order a drink. I think it's lemon tea. No, this is David Niles reporting for The Telegraph, just trying to give you a sense of everyday life in Kiev these last few days. Later that evening... David met up with Anna Yusilova, Kiev resident, to talk about her grandmother's experience. So it's 7.30pm in central Kiev. I'm sitting under a maple tree as the sun is just going down. It's touching the tops of the trees here. There's a, in, we're in a little sort of a square behind some of the buildings near one of the metro stations. There's two cafes here selling cola and coffee. There's a, an enthusiastic game of table tennis with spectators happening at the other side of the of the square here, the man's just shaking hands with his opponent. I think, I think there's been there's the end of the game there. Uh, but I'm here with uh, Anna Usinova. Anna's very kindly agreed to speak to us a little bit about her life in Kiev and talk a little bit about her grandmother's experience and what the older generation of Ukrainians went through during the war and how that relates to today. So first of all, Anna, thank you so much for introducing me to this wonderful square. This, you said this is one of your favourite places. Thank you very much. It, yeah, it is one of my favourite places. It is one of my favourite streets. Uh, I'm from Kiev, it's my native city. I love it so much. So I'm really happy now to be uh, here at home. So you told me that you've, you've come back quite recently from, from being abroad. In February, the end of February, the start of the war, what, what happened to you and your family? Mm-hmm. When the full-fledged war started uh, on February 24, me, my husband, my mom, my dad, my two grannies, we were in Kiev. Uh, we have some tragic uh, things that happened uh, in my family. My uncle died, and that's why we were uh, in the preparations uh, of the funeral. It was two days before the full-fledged war started. That's why when the funeral was on the 23rd of February, I thought that, uh, oh, uh, I think that I will take uh, some days of rest. Mm. But uh, the next morning, uh, the full-fledged war started. I spent first two days uh, in Kiev, and then we decided to go to the west of Ukraine. 
But my husband, he came back to Kyiv uh, because he felt that he must be in Kyiv. And my mom and me and my granny, we were in the west of Ukraine. But one of my grannies, she decided to stay in Kyiv. You, you came back um, okay. a month and a half ago? Uh, yeah. Um, what what was it like to come back to to your city? What, what had changed uh, mm-hmm. for you and, and for your family? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it is crazy, but uh, when uh, we decided to come back, I felt like I'm coming back to the I don't know to to Holland, you know. But it's crazy because I know that it is war in my country. Uh, I have friends, I have relatives uh, who are in army. I always trying to help them and uh, other Ukrainians. But I felt like I'm like I'm coming back home. I I haven't experienced anything like this before. When we crossed uh, the border. Uh, my mom, my granny and me, we almost cried because we are at home. And when I came back, uh, I was so happy to be there. But of course, Kyiv is a dangerous place as well, uh, because um, we see this uh, missiles, we, we see this uh, air sirens every day. and. Uh, I was nervous, yeah, you know, I was yeah. nervous when I came back to Kyiv. I was happy that I'm at home, but I was nervous as well. Uh, so I remember my first uh, air uh, siren in Kyiv when I came back. I was like, uh, okay, we don't have a shelter in our house where we live. Okay, what should I do? And then I decided to stay at uh, home, but um, I-, I was um, uh, in the bathroom because it's the most uh, the best place I mean in my in my uh, apartment to be there and uh, afterwards I wasn't so uh, nervous Mm -hmm. uh, because it was an important thing I was among my people like my family my friends and uh, I don't think that uh, Kyiv is not a dangerous place. It is a dangerous place. And, uh, and we still, uh, even if now we are lucky to sit and to drink coffee uh, and to work in Kyiv, uh, we still uh, need to know that lots of people are dying and we know that and uh, we need to help and we are trying to help, trying to help with donates trying to help help with the information so now i feel like i'm at home i should be there and uh, i'm happy to be here Anna, you mentioned your grandmother staying in Kiev, and you mentioned that you talked quite a bit to her about her experiences in the second world war mm-hmm. and therefore her experiences in comparison to her experiences now yeah what what does she tell you uh my granny she's uh, 86 uh and when uh, when Kyiv was occupied in uh, 1941, she was a child. And when I'm asking her, Granny, uh, how do you feel right now? Because she uh, was in Kyiv when the full-fledged war started uh, since February 24th. Uh, she told me that it was very scary for her to be in Kyiv, but it was her decision. I remember that she said, okay. I spent one war in Kyiv, I will spend this war as well. 
and she told me uh, now she's telling me that the things that she's uh, reading in news watching news that were happened in Bucha for example in Hostomel uh, that uh, are happening in the Kherson region I mean this uh, the Russians are rapists I mean this stuff and she's comparing it to the period when she was a child uh, during the Second World War she's saying to me that uh, she didn't experience such massacres you know like she didn't experience uh, when she was a, a girl during the Second World War it, it was it was of course it was a, a tragedy but the things that are Russians doing Russian soldiers are doing this she, when she was in Kiev being a child she didn't experience uh, such things it, it couldn't be even compared does she go down to the shelter every night or how, no. how does no she went to the shelter maybe once or twice uh, but then she decided to stay at home and she she was at home during uh, all this months first months of uh, the full-fledged war have you found your relationship with her change or get deeper because of the fact you're both you're both now in a conflict? Uh, it is deeper because uh, I'm always in contact with my um, grannies right now. I I feel I'm, I'm, I feel this connection to the to my roots more, and I decided uh, even to learn more about my um, family. When I came back to Kiev, I started to talk to my granny a lot. She told me a lot of interesting facts about my great-grandparents and also I asked my granny, Granny, why didn't you tell me about this? And she still has this, you know, this Soviet um, fear to talk about uh, things that, for example, my my relatives, uh, some of the, them were repressed by Soviet regime and she is afraid of talking about this even right now you know and uh, when I ask her uh, about the rules she's telling mm, the times were like this that I didn't ask uh, lots of questions and even now I see that this Soviet Union regime I don't know spirit is still present in my granny and I will explain what I'm talking about sure, yeah. for example when I'm talking <coughs> by phone uh, with my granny and we are discussing something uh, in each conversation she's telling me okay it's not a phone conversation when you will come to me we'll talk about that can I ask so you said your, your grandmother sort of grew up with this Soviet mentality a child in the Second World War and then lived most of her life behind the Iron Curtain in, 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 in Ukraine. What does she make of modern day Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Does she see, I mean, you said, you know, you, you come back here, you sort of you yeah. realize you love your country. Well, how, how, how does she feel? Uh, she feels that uh, <laughs> she loves the country with the, as much as she can. Like now is the period when she loves Ukraine the most. It couldn't be compared to anything. She is very thankful to our soldiers, to Ukrainian soldiers, and uh, each of the conversation she is um, finishing with the words "do peremohe." She's saying like this: "do peremohe." Uh, it means like let the victory be like to, this. To, to victory. To victory. To yeah. victory. And actually, she doesn't speak Ukrainian every day in her life, but now she is doing it more and more often. 
why she doesn't speak um, Ukrainian and she why she didn't uh, speak Ukrainian when she was young because all the Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian roots, it was killed by Soviet um, regime, by Russia, by Moscow. And uh, she is telling me now that she didn't speak Ukrainian because she was ashamed to speak Ukrainian. Uh, and for me, uh, like to me, I understand why it is like this. And I'm very happy that I don't have such feelings. Uh, I'm really glad that I can speak Ukrainian and I speak Ukrainian, but she has such experience. You mentioned when we were talking before that mm -hmm. in this war she saw Russian troops incredibly close by. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us a little bit about that? How did that happen? What did she do? She didn't uh, see it uh, through the window. Uh -huh. Because, you see, she, <laughs> when uh, it was too noisy, it was so... Um, scary so she was sitting in the bathroom and uh, then and later uh, in the morning uh, when she watched news uh, she recognized uh, the place that it was like in front of uh, her house uh, she, she just told me that it was so noisy she was with the, the cat and uh, the cat was so scared so they were together just sitting, uh, the granny and uh, the cat. Uh, Anna, is there anything we, we haven't spoken about that you, th you think is important to mention? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very important to say uh, that uh, Russia and Moscow, uh, for centuries, they were doing uh, the things to ruin Ukrainian culture and that's true it, it was it, it, they were doing it for centuries and uh, now I feel that it's time really time uh, for Ukrainians to do uh, things to show the world that our culture is not the same to Russian culture you know we are unique uh, it's the time for us to say that and to show that we uh, are fighting for our independence. So I just want to say that uh, please tell about Ukraine, just don't be silent. Uh, we really need the support of uh, the Europe, of the world. We really appreciate that uh, people support us and uh, it's really big uh, fight for Ukrainians. Lots of people are dying and uh, but we see that, like, we feel that we are on this bright side, you know, and uh, we, of course, will win, but the price is too high, so we need uh, the support. Do you feel optimistic about Ukraine's future? Of, of course we will win, no, of course, but uh, we will win uh, with the support of the world. And one final thing, you said something very interesting just after we, we turned, <laughs> off the, turned off the microphones. Can you tell us what that was? Yes, of course. Maybe it sounds crazy, but now in Kyiv, sometimes I feel that I live my best life. You know, what does it mean? It means that I'm really happy to wake up. I'm really happy to realize that uh, I have a family. I'm so glad to understand that I'm Ukrainian. 
it was some one time uh, in the subway uh, three weeks ago uh, it was a I know the traffic jam but in the subway lots of people and previously before the full-fledged war I may might be uh, stressed because of the tons of people lots of people but three weeks ago I I was in the line and I was uh, crying uh, because I was happy to be among my people among Ukrainians among Ukrainians in Kiev uh, I feel I feel it each day right now and I think uh, that lots of Ukrainians feel the things like this because we are um, discussing it with my good friends as well uh, and I think that's 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 the thing inside us which is called Ukraine I, I don't know how to explain this yeah Anna thank you very very much Then we caught up with David and Dom for their final reflections after arriving in Poland. So, David, Dom, where are you now and what's the trip home been like so far? It's been quite uneventful, really. Um, uh, we're in Poland now. We've crossed the border about an hour and a half ago. Um, we're in a place called Krasnystad and we're sort of looking for someone to get breakfast because we haven't eaten. I think the only thing we've eaten in the last, what, what is it, 18 hours now, Dom, has been a, a bottle of coconut and half a, half a piece of chewing gum for breakfast. So we took the night train from Kiev to Lutsk and uh, we got to Lutsk at about six in the morning, uh, got a bus of, of a lot of Myrda and then uh, got another bus over the border uh, traveling with, with a with, yes, in a, in a large coach. And that took about, it took about four hours to get over the border. So everything's happening. We're back on the road to, to Warsaw and we should get there sort of later today. So yes, it's been it's been a sort of exhausting twenty four hours, and uh, yes, it, it was a, a, quite an experience to be in, to be in Ukraine and speak to as many people as we did, um, to cover as much as we did. I mean, Dom talking to ministers and to mayors, um, and I was out and about trying to understand uh, views of the war from from ordinary folk in, in the streets, and and it's over. We were only really there for, for three days, which seems altogether far too short a time to really understand. Um, really understand and, and appreciate what what's going on. Um, so I don't know if Dom wants to add to that. Yeah, hi Francis, hi everybody. It has been it has been frantic, been a bit uh, frenetic. We should have come out for longer, but that's just the way the, these uh, these dates work out. But no, it's absolutely fascinating. I had some some, some great meetings yesterday, um, not only with um, Olga Stefanishnia, the, the deputy prime minister uh, of of uh, Ukraine, but also I met um, Alexei Makiev, who's the uh, Ukrainian parliamentary. He's the special envoy for sanctions policy, basically. Uh, and tipped to be the next um, or uh, an ambassador to a to a, uh, a major European power. I don't think I should say which one, just in case. Um, and then I saw Ms. Chernyov Yegor, who is the Ukrainian parliamentary head of the parliamentary delegation to NATO. So I had a good chat about about uh, Ukraine's aspirations for NATO membership. Um, uh, un- unsurprisingly, that that's exactly the security guarantees they are seeking. And and quite frankly, there's there's. There's nothing else. There's Article Five, and that's it. There's no other security guarantees that they that they see would be adequate to uh, to address the the situation that they are now um, or they have been facing for a long time. And then I also I finished the day off yesterday with uh, by meeting Major General Vadim Skibitsky, who's the acting head of Ukrainian military intelligence. He was fascinating. I'm going to do something over the weekend, Sunday, probably probably in Monday's paper, I think, and on on online. But he was. Uh, we talked at length about. Uh, he was very open, very you know, surprisingly open. I have to say, compared to uh, his sort of 
US, British and European, other European uh, partners. But he was talking about the, the, the amount of coverage that, that the Ukraine intelligence has inside Russia, inside the Kremlin, how many how many agents they have, literally, he's using the phrase agents. I don't use the, the term lightly, and I, and I know what the, the phrase means. And, and, and this is what he was saying. So uh, he was, it was fascinating to hear how well read they are on uh, Russia's intentions. For example, I mean, he was saying that, that his network had had told Ukraine that actually the original date of the invasion of the 15th was was pushed back by Putin personally to the 24th uh, and they got wind of that um, through their network quite early and we were also talking about about the efforts to find and uh, detain those Russian agents who are now in Western Ukraine, um, Poland, and probably elsewhere, looking for the Western supplied arms going in, and um, uh, Mr. Skibitsky, General Skibitsky, was was very clear saying he's get they're getting a lot of help from from more partners, um, British, uh, American, and, and elsewhere. And I said, what 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 kind of help? What capabilities? He said that everything from from human so human intelligence to tech in technical intelligence, imagery, satellite imagery. But yes, yeah, so that should be in on, on Monday's paper. But but I did ask him just finally. I asked him specifically about the high miles targeting because that, that, that they've been very accurately hitting those bridges down in Kherson and the ammunition dumps, the fuel supplies, the command and control um, elements of Russia's military. And and he he, he said that the, yeah the Americans are not supplying targeting information. Um, however. Uh, when Ukraine basically turns around and offers them a ten-figure grid or you know, lat-long equivalent, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, and says we're thinking of, of striking this, we believe it to be you know, com- command and control or ammo dump, what have you, um, th- that's the moment where the international partners can say, "Ooh, I wouldn't touch that with a barge pole if I were you, mate," or "Not with my high Mars, Sunny Jim." And if they don't get that kind of response, then they then they uh, attack it. So, you know, not targeting information directly from the West, but but as good as if you like which i think was was i think we'd all suspected that really but i thought that was very interesting hearing that from the the head of uh, ukrainian military intelligence and i'll just uh, i'll just take a little pause there and hand back uh, to francis thanks tom absolutely fascinating hearing about that and as i say to to listeners and as you were saying there they'll be i'm sure able to read about that in the paper in the coming days and and no doubt when you're back here in london you'll be talking about it on the podcast as well just wondering general reflections from both of you was there anything particularly that surprised you whilst you were there that you weren't expecting based on on the amount of coverage that we've done on the war so far yeah, I can take this first. Um, so I'd say when I went to uh, Butcher a few days ago, there was a moment where we were shown, I think I've talked about this before, the, the, the gym in the school, which had been converted into a sort of uh, an aid depot, essentially. So the, full of people uh, sewing um, camouflage suits for the army. They were making uh, mattresses for the soldiers, all sorts of different things out of, out of bits of scraps of cloth and, and, and donations. And I was sort of walking around this, taking pictures, kind of, kind of open mouth, saying, you know, there was, a, as I said before, there was an old lady who's 84 years old or something who was, who was helping out. There were kids running around doing this as well. And um, Ilya Gonsharev, who was translating, um, I sort of said to him, "Gosh, this is quite something." And he was like, "Well, no, it's normal. You know, this is what this is what you know. I, I with something like this near near, near where I grew up, this, this this is quite normal for for Ukrainian schools and for people to be for the communities to be coming together to to do something like this." And and for and I thought that was a very interesting moment that actually that amount of sort of uh, that belief that unity that 
that was normal. It wasn't particularly special. As, as a Westerner going in, I was, you know, sort of overawed by it. But actually, that's just that's a scene repeated in thousands of schools and halls and all sorts of different places across Ukraine. I think for me, that was a bit, a, bit, a moment when I was like, when I certainly thought seeing that, like, gosh, you know, this Putin isn't just fighting an army, he's fighting an entire people. And for me, it was how much the war is becoming normalised. Um, uh, you know, this is not a good thing. But um, uh, when we were with Vitaly Klitschko, he was, I was asking him about, about his advice to the, to the population. Should they stay away? Should they come home? And he was kind of shrugging and saying, well, you know, if they want to, there's, there's a risk. But um, if they want to come home, he's not, he's not going to actively stop them. Um, Kiev, a city of 3.6 million, down to 3 million now, although there's 200,000 refugees or internally displaced people in Kiev. So, you know, a very large, very large city. Um, and I also, this, this came back to me a couple of days later. Yesterday, in fact, when the air alarm um, warnings, air alarm sirens went off again. And the um, so the hotel staff sort of you know, bustled around and, and grabbed any any guests who were who were loitering in the lobby and looking like near do wells, which is you know, basically me, and uh, ushered us straight down to the basement. No questions asked. You, you, you know, I was waiting to be picked up to head off to go and see some of these um, some of the meetings, but uh, but there was no there was no sort of hanging about. I was I was shoved down in the basement, and uh, the, the the alarms were going off, and everybody was down there. Was I say everybody? There were, there were lots of people down there, and. Um, and I thought, oh, well, maybe this is maybe this is a bit more targeted. It hadn't been quite as well observed as I as I'd seen before. Um, anyway, and I messaged the person uh, coming to pick me up from the Transatlantic Dialogue Centre, the think tank here in Kiev, who's uh, that's very closely attached to the or does a lot of work with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and um, and is very well plugged into Ukrainian thinking. And and I said, oh, yeah, air, air alarm. Shall I see you later? We're going to postpone these meetings, which I really didn't want to do because it was the first one was with the um, the deputy prime minister. And um, and Yulia said, no, 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 no. I'll yeah, I'll pick you up in five minutes. So I thought, right, here we go. Yeah, for the for the for the greater good. Got to go and see the vice prime minister, deputy prime minister. Big boy pants time. So I thought, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna head off. And I went upstairs and out onto the street to be to be picked up. And it was entirely normal people were strolling around kids people were going to go to work or just enjoying the sunshine and it was in such contrast to, to the to the atmosphere in the basement uh, and i just thought you know if this is becoming normalized if there's a if there's an air alarm warning for either um you know something in or heading towards kiev oblast or the city itself um and everybody in that area is is subjected to the alarm and, and you are supposed to follow the advice if people are now not doing that i thought that's it says something of the society and resilience but it also says something about how much the the risk is becoming just just normalized and i, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing but uh, that was that was the, the one the one thing that that slightly surprised me um yeah but otherwise otherwise well, it was an absolutely fascinating week and really really interesting to to tie in with uh, with the, the people that we were that's extremely interesting. Um, would you say then to both of you that morale amongst the Ukrainian people that you spoke to was was as high as has been reported? I wouldn't call it morale. It's just, as Dom said, it's that resilience that the sort of people that I met were grimly determined. Well, they all believe Ukraine will win. Um, they were all willing to give you know, whatever they can to, 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 to get there. Um, and that the question is, the thing that people don't know is how long it will take. Um I mean, people you know, obviously hate the war. Um, the people we spoke to, their families have been torn apart, their lives have been ruined. Um, it, 
it's it's their, their determination to keep on going and to, to make a good life for themselves and a good life in, in, in their country that's that's what keeps people going and just to add to, to what tom said i had some interesting conversations yesterday with alina polyakova from ukranska pravda so that's the um english language site from from the newspaper ukranska pravda the, um, site online i should say sorry and talk, talking more to Ilya goncharev and i spoke to anna Burson, who should be around kiev again and they all spoke about how life is sort of sharper now um people are getting married younger um people are doing everything they can to enjoy themselves and sort of uh, because they because as they said they don't know you don't know when a missile is going to fall and obliterate your block of apartments you don't know when a russian tank column is going to turn up at the end of your street uh, and you don't necessarily know you know what the future holds they, they they all said it was very very difficult to plan anything you know one, one of my big questions is you know what are you what are you thinking of the future what are you going to do you know next year and they just look at they look at me like well, how on earth do, would you think I, I know that um I, I can't plan we don't we don't know the, how this is going to go um we just hope we just hope and we believe that we'll, we'll win um so that that was something I, I definitely took away as well dom is asking for the phone back <laughs> well all i was going to say francis in answer to your question about morale is i think morale is high but I think it is also the resilience that we've just spoken of there and and a determination to see this through. The message was very clear that that they do not most people do not see any in fact I didn't speak to anybody who saw a negotiation who saw negotiations as a way out of this. They they see this is going to be solved on the battlefield, um, and the battlefield will be the, in, the the whole of the country, and they're prepared for that. Remember the stats I gave you a couple of days ago from the ratings group, the um the um the pollsters out here, uh, Ukraine-based pollsters, and that figure of, of people who think the war will last uh, a few weeks, a few months, over six months, over a year. Remember, I told you that it slewed really quite markedly uh, in the over six months and definitely over a year category. So so I think people are uh, sort of mentally digging in. They um, are prepared to go to the end. They do not see a negotiated solution to this. Um, and so is morale high? Uh, I think morale is high. But it's also there's a grim determination that they've got no other there's no other choice. My my final question to you both was just a general whether you had any other any other thoughts before you come back to London. Um, is there anything that particularly you wanted to impress upon our regular listeners? I, I would like to just slightly end on a, on a happier note, really. Um, the the hospitality, the warmness, the kindness that was shown to us by people who've experienced some of the worst weeks and worst months of their lives who opened their homes to us, who spoke to us, who answered our questions, no, no matter how no, no matter how ignorant or stupid, and did so with a smile and um, with kindness, who, who showed us what they went through, who, who did that despite the pain it causes them to, to relive it, because they want those stories to be told. We, we could not be more grateful for the welcome we, we received and the help we received from from the Ukrainian people um, across across the country. It was it was thanks to ordinary people's kindness and, and helpfulness that that we that we made it and and also that we frankly that we made it back. So that, so thank you very much for that and we we hope that we've we've done our best to um to, to, to tell the stories and to reach as many people as possible. Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to us live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it.
If you found this podcast informative, please consider following Ukraine the Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. This week alone, we've heard from listeners in the United States, New Zealand, Australia, Norway, Lithuania and Switzerland. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Tanner.